0: Good afternoon my friends happy Wednesday the doctors in the house welcome back to another episode of to your health with dr. G oh my gosh I'm so excited to be here I'm always excited to be here on such a great day talking about an important and powerful topic hey we're continuing my hashtag cancer sucks series you guys have been joining me for these last few weeks and we've been talking out how do we create more awareness about cancer? How do we create more engagement and hopefully continue to develop practical solutions now and into the future? So today we're concluding my hashtag cancer series. But again, what we've talked about this whole series, don't let this conversation end today. Cancer discussion has to happen on a daily basis, and we have to be comfortable talking about it because it's a reality for many of us. Many of us have been touched by this, have have members that have succumbed or have been afflicted by cancer. But again, it's going to take a community. It's going to take a lot of, of people that have that are that have the same goals in in, in their in their outlooks to making sure that we overcome cancer burden and reduce the burden of cancer disease in this country. And again, it takes a village, that's a saying that we talk about all the time, and I've used that saying on the show. Again, don't let this conversation end today. Continue to share this message with those that are out there that need to hear something. I've been so blessed to have so many great medical colleagues of mine, physicians, uh, just, just great collaborators on this whole project to make this Hashtag Cancer Sucks Series a success, and again, we're going to continue this keep going. Uh, remember, all the old episodes of Hashtag Cancer Sucks Series are on my website, www.drmarkgomez.com. They're also available on iTunes or your favorite audio app, and not only this season's Hashtag Cancer Sucks Series, but also last season's Hashtag Cancer Sucks Series. So again, let's continue this discussion. We cannot let this momentum die down. So I'm excited to welcome everybody back to To your with Dr. G. Your Joining us here live at intellectual radio studios you're also checking us out live on Facebook my website again www.drmarkgomez.com we're concluding hashtag cancer sex series today talking about pancreatic cancer and before we get into all that kind of stuff I want to just kind of hit you with a couple different things you know this whole process for me talking about this hashtag cancer sex series, I've had to been be really introspective uh, and again as a physician as a board certified physician I, I, I certainly want to make sure all my patients have the right resources you know, we talk about engagement, it's gotta be community engagement, but it's also gotta be personal engagement. We've talked about things that you can do to lower your cancer risk, but also things that also may increase risk. And none of this also is true without without having this kind of conversation. So today we're gonna be talking about pancreatic cancer, which is a cancer that a lot of people fear. But we're gonna try to try to try to just find that that, that niche of hope out there to have this kind of discussion to make sure that everybody has equal resources we always talk about equity and access when it comes to health and again when we talk about cancer cancer does not discriminate and so we have to be more comfortable talking about this so again i implore you to share this show and share this message and at the end of the day of course any questions go see your doctor that's one of the best things about this show is we encourage people to have those relationships with the physicians your primary care physician will be there to rescue you they will connect you with 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 a great group of specialists for whatever kind of thing it is. Again, there's no such thing as crying wolf when it comes to your health. I want you all to be healthy, to live active and productive lives. So before we get into the show, I want to hit you with a quick disclaimer. The content of To Your Health with Dr. G is for informational and entertainment purposes only and that the content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Further details can be found at www.toyourhealthwithdrg.com slash disclaimer all right so here's how the show works again for those of you that are new to us what i do is i have my esteemed guests join me we're going to break this down break down today's topic of pancreatic cancer um also for those of you that have been following us all along thank you for tuning in and continue to share and spread this message so uh i'm gonna pick on my colleagues i love them to death Uh, my colleagues are great and we all work together and when i was putting this show together i go these two individuals uh first of all they see a lot of my patients but I trust them in what they do. I trust them with my own health if I, had, if I had to see them, and I know my patients trust them too. So I'm so glad that both of them can take time out of their schedules today to help uh, spread a message of engagement with you. So I want to introduce my guests without further ado. My first guest, Dr. Samir Undavia, he's a board-certified hematologist-oncologist. He's Associate Medical Director of Oncology Services at Edward Hospital. He's part of Edward Elmer's Health. Check him out at www.eehealth.org. Dr. Undavia, welcome to the show. Thank you. Please tell us a little bit about your uh, where you did your medical school, where you did some of your training, your residency, your fellowship, and a few words about what does today's theme of pancreatic cancer mean to you.
1: Um, Well, I did college at uh, Cornell University in upstate New York, and then medical school at NYU in New York City. Um, After that, it was residency, fellowship, and then uh, a faculty position at the University of Chicago, which I still hold. Um, And pancreatic cancer, um, it's a difficult cancer to diagnose a difficult cancer to treat, and so awareness, as is the key for all health issues, is important, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Excellent,
0: thank you for coming out today. I'm so excited, we're gonna get real granular in a little bit. My next guest, uh, I've known him for a while, a good friend of mine, he's also seen a number of my patients. He's also part of Edward House Hospital with me, as well Tell so I want to welcome to the show Dr. Fadi Dadalei. He's a board-certified surgical oncologist. He's part of Edward Elmer's Health. Check him out, www.eehealth.org. Dr. Thaddele, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Please tell us where you did your medical school, where you did your residency training, uh, and really what does this theme today mean to you?
2: Sure. So um, I'm originally from Jordan, the country Jordan. I grew up there. I went to medical school and undergrad at the American University of Beirut, and from there I moved to the United States to complete my tr- uh, residency training. I trained at the University of Iowa, where I did five years of general surgery, then two years of uh Um, molecular biology basic science um, uh, as part of my uh, research years and then uh, um, I applied to complex general surgical oncology and I matched here at the University of Chicago and I spent two years there, completed my training in, in surgical oncology there and uh, stayed in the area. Yes, yeah. wonderful, well, thank you very much. I'm so excited
0: for you to be on the show, both of you guys. Again, to help us really conclude this series, but again, as, as any of us will say, the most important thing as we talk about pancreatic cancer today is again to share this message. Again, trust your, tr- you know, I want people to get the right information for the right right resources. You know, on To Your Health and Dr. G, we're all about building trust and delivering truth you know we don't want you getting your information uh, a lot from Dr. Google and I've said that many times but I want you guys to feel comfortable with any kind of health topic doesn't matter if we're talking about cancer or diabetes or heart disease you know uh, talk to your clinician they will give you the right answer they will guide you the right way and get you connected with the people because it really takes a village to get us an integrated approach so I'm so excited to talk about it today so um, when people come into the office, we call that the chief complaint, right guys? And so the chief complaint, a.k.a. the question of the hour, we talk about on T.R.F. with Dr. G today is, drum roll please. Uh, the chief complaint today, question of the hour is, what causes pancreatic cancer to develop? How can the risk be minimized? And what treatment options are available? So I'm gonna ask this, so I'm gonna start out a, little, a little bit with Dr. Andavia. Dr. David, maybe just could give us a little bit more of a, just kind of planting the, the seed a little bit. You know. What are some of this, just the general statistics on, on pancreatic cancer as far as, like, how common is it? Uh, you know, Do we have any estimates on how many people get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer uh, in the country every year? And even some of the mortality statistics.
1: Um, there will be about uh, 57,000 new diagnoses of pancreatic cancer in this country in 2019. Um, it's a little bit more common in men than in women. Um, it's a little bit more common in African American individuals than others. Altogether, pancreatic cancer makes up about three percent of all diagnosed cancers and about seven percent of all cancer deaths in the U.S.
0: Okay. So that's a very—I mean—I mean—it it sounds like a small number, but but the, the, the impact, of course, of anything cancer and certainly pancreatic cancer, can be uh, uh, felt throughout uh, the community. Um, you know. Let me have, let me do, give you a follow up question. You know, uh, you know, we talk a lot about other kind of cancers that get a lot more uh, attention: uh, breast cancer, um, you know, colon cancer, a lot of things. What's wh- what are we doing, like, as far as just creating more awareness about pancreatic cancer? You don't hear it a lot as a buzzword, of course, in the common uh, discu- discourse in this country.
1: Sure. I mean, there are there's uh, there are a lot of things that are being uh, being done out there. You know, there are fun runs for for pancreatic cancer research and awareness, um, often at times it takes, a a celebrity to get cancer and for that to make headlines. Uh, but because it's not so common, thank God, we don't see that a lot. Um, but a lot, quite honestly, much of this is word of mouth. You know, we still, I think, in this country, are sometimes afraid about talking about cancer and my family member has cancer, those sorts of things. But that kind of word of mouth really makes a big difference. It, brings awareness to people who might not be otherwise uh, available to those other sources.
0: Thank you. So, Dr. Donnelly, let me ask you this question. Uh, again, you are a surgical oncologist by training. Uh, not everybody may know what a surgical oncologist a lot of people probably know what an oncologist is, like Dr. Andavia, but maybe not a lot of people know what a surgical oncologist is. Can you just kind of give an overview of what a surgical oncologist does uh, in their day-to-day practice?
2: Sure. And so, um, to become a surgical oncologist, the prerequisite is to be a general surgeon. And so we're general surgeons at heart, but then uh, following that, we pursue additional training um, uh, for uh, to be able to treat a variety of different uh, malignancies. It really, if I could be a little bit more broad, anything in the abdomen is almost under our territory, and some neck tumors and peripheral sarcomas, uh, we treat uh, surgically. And I think the uh, the the uh, really the, the edge that we have, or the additional training and the certification that we get, tries to focus... Um, um, or kind of build us into team members of a multidisciplinary team so we can better communicate and understand the different forms of treatments that uh, um, are available for cancer in addition to um, advanced uh, techniques and so I think in this day and age um, um, there's been a lot of uh, uh, different studies that show um, um, if you have uh, uh, um, adequate experience in a uh, um, if you have adequate experience treating a certain, a certain tumor then the outcomes become better and better and i think that was the the goal of our training and so
0: and so i want to piggyback on what you said a, a second ago about about the importance of having a team a team-based approach mm-hmm. uh, you know medicine how it used to be back in the day you know it was very siloed uh, people had their practice um and and i felt like uh, even in my early days of going of going this in i've been in clinical practice 12 years now but i see much more integration now can you talk a little bit how you two work together Uh, especially centered around a topic like this. How does that interaction uh, work for people out there that are trying to understand what they might get into or if they have a loved one who's been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer? What is the team-based approach
2: to this? So a team-based approach um, um, works on several levels. It's it's really important for uh, practitioners and clinicians that are treating cancer to be able to look at um, each patient individually and to look at it from different lenses because oftentimes... I may know a lot about a certain procedure that I, that uh, can benefit a patient, but then uh, a colleague of mine like Dr. Ndivie will tell me about the different um, chemotherapeutic options, and sometimes it's more appropriate to give chemotherapy or deliver radiation or offer immunotherapy uh, for patients that, that might not be um, exactly my area of expertise, and some, sometimes the opposite is true, I hope. <laughs> and so um, the way that we work together is um, um, oftentimes we have... Uh, uh, clinics that are run at the same time so we'll be able to see patients um, in the same location or about the same location in our cancer center and then more importantly we present all of our patients um, in a multidisciplinary tumor board and that occurs um, uh, once a week for each uh, discipline for example gastrointestinal malignancies we see uh, we present all of our new cases and, and, and important patients uh, once a week and where everybody kind of sits down and has a, an intellectual discussion on what needs to happen next and I think there's been there's been a lot of um... um, important data that support that this approach to a multi this multidisciplinary approach achieves better outcomes and uh... ultimately we're able to tailor a better uh, better treatment uh... for patients you know that's one of the reassuring things and I'll have Dr. and David piggyback on
0: that in a second one of the things that I do is uh, if I do make the uh... the the suspicion of cancer in the primary care practice, primary care facility, and I certainly move them to your guys' direction. It's One of the first things I do is I sit down and tell my patients that, hey, you know, you're gonna have a team. You know, it's not just one doctor, him or her, or one particular specialty, just oncology. There's gonna be multiple eyes on this case uh, to give you the best outcome and the best treatment sort of treatment uh, available for what you're dealing with. And I think from my end, having having to give some some news of suspicions for cancer, I think that, that hopefully helps to give people reassurance that, hey, I'm still going to be, even though I'm your primary care physician, I'm still going to be involved. The, the, the specialists, they're going to keep me up to date on every step of the way. And I think that helps give them a little more comfort as they deal with this difficult diagnosis. Uh, Dr. David, talk a little bit more from your perspective on just kind of how you view the multidisciplinary approach on helping people reach their goals, especially when we're talking about today's topic of uh, pancreatic cancer.
1: Well, I think it's key. Um, You know, in those conferences where uh, we're sitting down as a group, it's not just surgical oncology and medical oncology, it's radiation oncology, it's pathology, it's the radiologist, it's um, the geneticist, the the gastroenterologist, if it's a GI malignancy. And it's important because um, when you're looking at a case, you may not know the entire story of the patient. You may know only the information you've been given. There's a lot of backstory that can be provided by others around the table that help change the way you approach that patient. Um, and it's it's not uncommon that in the setting of our discussions, a radiologist will reinterpret what, that, what he or she sees on that X-ray based upon the information that's heard. The second thing is, is that... You know, to send a patient to each of those individual doctors is difficult. How can you go see all these different doctors? But we can reassure the patient, although you haven't seen the surgeon yet, the surgeon already knows your case, I've spoken to him or her, and this is our plan as a group. Excellent. Well, thank you for
0: giving some clarification there. So let me ask this. Uh, You know, a lot of people want to know some things. When we talk about pancreatic cancer, and, and we hear about a lot of the devastation of pancreatic cancer, rightfully so, but it's not just pancreatic cancer like, you know, there's different types. So, can you? I'm gonna come back to you, Dr. David, Can you explain the different types of pancreatic cancer? I think everybody wants to associate it with with uh, what we call adenocarcinoma, uh, and with the dismal, uh, you know, survival rates of five years, which 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 are true to an extent. But 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 I don't think it's a one size fits all when it says, "Oh my gosh, pancreatic cancer."
1: Yeah. Can you explain a little bit more about that? That's right. About about 85% of um Uh, pancreatic tumors are so-called adenocarcinomas of the pancreas, and that's that's the sort of cancer that most people think of when they think of pancreatic cancer. Uh, The remainder are uh, mostly what we call neuroendocrine cancers, and these tumors are dramatically different. They have a slower progression, a much better prognosis, and the distinction is important not only in terms of prognosis, but in the approach to treatment. Gotcha.
0: So, Dr. Dr uh, Donnelly, let me ask you this. When you when, Just generally speaking, again, kind of think about what people may be thinking about. And say somebody, you know, one of the things that people always talk about when it comes to cancer, they say, okay, what can I do to reduce my risk? Just from a general standpoint, sure. what are some general recommendations, now, not just particularly pancreatic cancer, but just general, are there some risk reduction strategies out there that you uh, advise your patients or things you hear about when you're hearing about reducing your chances for cancer?
2: Sure, absolutely. I think... Um, um, the other way to look at it is to think about what are the, fa- the modifiable risk factors that um, are associated with pancreatic cancer. I think that one of the biggest ones is smoking. Um, from retrospective studies, about 25% of patients um, are identified as smoked, and it's estimated it's about 1.5 times their risk as, as compared to an average individual is about 1.5 times uh, um, uh, that, and so if you smoke... Try to quit smoking. I think that's the first thing to do. There's also been some studies on the um, uh, the effect of diet on, uh, on modifying uh, pancreatic cancer. Uh, one of them quoted that patients who uh, um, kind of live by a, uh, live and eat a healthy diet, including you know vegetables um, um, and uh, and uh, nuts and uh, fruits and whatnot, um, have observed a lower uh, chance of having. Uh, um, uh, pancreatic cancer, and BMI, and I think BMI, obviously you've talked a lot about that yeah. on your show, mm-hmm. you can modify your BMI in, in different ways, namely exercise and diet and sometimes you know, medical or, or surgical treatment. Um, there's been really good studies, retrospective studies looking at um, uh, patients who are above a certain threshold. They use the threshold of 30. Um, they're at a higher risk of getting uh, pancreatic cancer. Um, And so um, if if one can modify these um, risk factors, I think they could bring down the risk of having pancreatic cancer. And those same things
1: are good for health in general, right? I mean, all of those things will help your heart and your lungs and the rest. So you don't
0: smoke, uh, don't drink heavily, control your body weight and things like that. And you're not going to get heart disease, you know, reduce diabetes risk and all that kind of jazz. Yeah. But, but it's important to set the threshold because people fear cancer. There's no doubt about that. And so if somebody's going all in on their health engagement strategy, yes, we want you to be, certainly me as a primary care physician, I want you to be hitting those targets. I want you to come in for your annual physical. I want you to get your basic labs that you should be getting done. I want you, if you're, quit, you're smoking, to quit smoking. You know, if, you're, if we're having weight challenges, yes, we want to help get you in the right resources to have, be, be successful with, with weight loss. Uh, uh, you know, We can't change your age. We can't change your gender. We can't change your race. But, but, but we're talking about some of the modifiable things that we don't have to shoot ourselves in the foot. So thank you for giving that information. So let me ask this question. I'm going to come back at you, Dr. Ndavia. Uh, is there a family history risks? For, are, are there family history risks for pancreatic cancer that you're aware of?
1: So the, the overwhelming majority of pancreatic cancers are caused for reasons other than familiar or genetic risks. But about 5 to 10 percent of pancreatic cancers are what we call familial in nature. And uh, a good majority of those are due to mutations and specific genes that we can even test for. And so family histories very important. It is important to, you know, let your family physician know about that family history, and it's important for families to talk. Around the Thanksgiving yes. table, um, among <laughs> all the other things we talk about, it's important to talk about those things because that can give a clue into people who are at risk, and if you can be proactive, that's always better than being reactive.
0: Yeah. I know one of the things that, that's a challenge, and I see a lot of it in my patients, generally speaking, just a general comment, observation for my part, is we don't have those family discussions um you know say you know i remember being being little and and going to you know you go to different things and and you know the kids have to get excused out of the room because grown-up conversation is about to happen um you know so so we see that kind of stuff quite often and so that history is not shared and then you become the adult and then you don't have any idea of the family history what did grandma Pass from what did grandpa have? Maybe you know what mom or dad had if they told you. But sometimes you know we all well been there where where the parent may not tell anybody, or vice versa, the parent may have a diagnosis, uh, but but maybe the kids don't want you to tell the parent about that. But then I was think about the kids that are adults in their fifties, sixties. We're talking about an elderly parent. They need to basically be screened too. So I want to keep conversation going on. So so, Dr. Dudley, when you get into that situation of having discussions with families. How do you encourage people to just be more open about this diagnosis you know you're seeing people with pancreatic cancer they may family members have a lot of questions a lot how do you just kind of keep dialogue going on when you're sitting down with patients
2: well i think um, that's a great question i think you know the short answer would be um, there's no substitute to spending time with, with, uh, with a patient and their family and I think you know what I try to do in clinic is try to to, to glean from, from you know our conversation you know what they value, how their relationship with their uh, family members uh, is like, and kind of reinforce it um, um, that it's extremely important uh, that discuss you know new diagnoses and family history among everybody so that everybody's informed. And I also you know I think patients are are and subjects are very very smart. I mean I think if you educate them as well, if you spend that extra five or ten minutes. Educating them on why I think it's important, I think that goes a long, long way. And so I try to focus on these two things and, and, and you know, some, most of the time I think it's uh, successful.
0: So let me ask you guys this question. You know, Say somebody does, a loved one, somebody's just listening to us right now, but say somebody has a loved one, they've been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, um, they come to your office, uh, Dr. N'Day, I'll start with you, but what are some questions that you want people to ask you? Because you're there as the expert at that moment, Um, But are there some questions that that you want to make sure that they ask you or are there questions that you want to make sure that you open yourself up and say, Hey, you guys didn't, you know, you guys didn't ask me about this, but I'm going to tell you this. You know, how do you kind of address that kind of of dynamic when you're in the office setting?
1: Well, you know, specifically for pancreatic cancer, it's often quite straightforward because people want to know, you know, what can you do to make me better? Is it curable? What are my chances? Uh, but things that I things that should be discussed include that family history, and so you know I certainly take a very detailed family history and ask them. if We don't know the answers to some of those questions to go and find them. Um, it is important, I think, to talk about what are the causes of pancreatic cancer because even for that individual that may have it, you know. So the horse has left the barn. There are others in the family who have the same risk factors. This, you know the same smoking risk factors, and it's helpful to bring that out. Um, uh, it's important, I think, for patients to ask. And if they don't, I certainly talk about it. How does this affect not only my health but my day to day? What? How does it affect my ability to go to work? To to if take care of the elderly parent that I'm taking care of, those things, because cancer not only affects the life of the person who's going through it, but all those that surround that person. Dr. Dadalai, your
0: approach, what's your kind of approach? You know, people are seeing you, and, and of course, your your job as the, your role as a surgical oncologist is to, essentially perform surgery um and, and if something's able to be resectable re- resect resected yeah. so that we're wrong um but how do you kind of approach that you know if what kind of questions do people usually ask you about when it comes to the actual technical procedure that you may
2: be uh, doing sure and so you've touched on a very um, um essential part about the staging of pancreatic cancer if i may say because because as Please. you as you know Um, um, the majority of patients, unfortunately, um, are not candidates for surgery or for uh, a form of treatment that is what we call, between quotations, potentially curable, which is really surgery in in, in 2019. And so um, when I do see those patients, um, I try, you know, the anatomy of the tumor is extremely important, so um, we spend a lot of time going through pictures describing the anatomy, showing them the relationship of the tumor to the surrounding blood vessels, because that makes a very big difference in terms of, how we time the operation and how we do the operation. Sometimes it's a little bit more extensive, sometimes it's less extensive, sometimes we're able to do uh, um, uh, minimally invasive approaches like robotic or laparoscopic surgery, and sometimes you have to do it the old-fashioned way. And so there's a lot of, you know, the the devil's in the details in terms of, you know, what exactly uh, the type of operation is going to be. Another really important uh, uh, um, issue that we always like to bring up and want to educate the uh, patients about is that who performs the operation um, um, is also, has been linked to outcomes, and where you get your operation done has been linked to outcomes, because you want to have your operation um, by somebody who does this on a more routine basis, on a, you know, on a, uh, 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 they, they, they do it often, you know, okay? Uh, The other thing is that you want to have it at a place where they have expertise, like gastroenterologists, like uh, interventional radiologists, and other uh, physicians that can save patients if they have complications from these uh, operations. Because failing to save a patient is also a major issue. And even though sometimes you do an excellent technical operation, if you don't have that safety net, um, um, your outcomes are going to be... Um, different. And so my advice is always ask, if, if we're seeing that patient, always ask, how often are you doing this operation? Are you trained adequately to do it? And is the is the hospital or is the place where I'm getting this operation done, are they equipped um, to help me get through the operation? And I think these are critical things, because not only does it have implications on getting through surgery, as Dr. Ondivio will tell you, a good operation will um, get you through surgery and beyond, meaning yes. that you're gonna be able to get um, additional therapy, be it chemotherapy or radiation after surgery, which is almost oft- almost always um, um, indicated, almost. not always. I'm not gonna speak <laughs> on your behalf. Um, and so uh, a good operation is key uh, for long-term survival. So,
0: Thank you. You know, one of the things that people always tell me about, again, from where my primary care but as I get patients over to you, um, you know, uh, so some things immediately when, when I may make that original diagnosis of certainly, um, you know, what's suspicious of pancreatic cancer based on the imaging that I might order for abdominal pain or, you know, somebody's got weight loss, abdominal pain, the classic triad, weight loss, abdominal pain, and jaundice, a yellowing of the skin or the eyes. Uh, and so, uh, you know, if I, if I make that original CT scan and I see something there and I get them over your ways, uh, I immediately get bombarded with questions about chemotherapy. Uh, uh, even though I, I, I tell patients, we don't have a diagnosis yet. I, I don't want to label somebody with malignancy until it's been pathologically confirmed. But we certainly have our suspicions. And I always feel that for me, that's a hard, somewhat of a hard discussion to have. But I think people want you to be honest with them. And we have to be, as clinicians, we have to be honest with our, our patients. So let me ask this question to Dr. N- Dr. Davia. You know, you know, we talk about jaundice, weight loss, abdominal pain. John of kind of the classic triad uh, presentation of presentation of, of pancreatic cancer. Are there other symptoms that
1: people may have that may be suspicious of this diagnosis? Sure. I mean, other things that people um, might complain about is uh, new onset diarrhea, sort of an inability to digest things properly, which, which then causes the diarrhea. Um, it's not infrequent that in the two to three years prior to the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, people are often diagnosed with diabetes. And these are, you know, in some cases, people who don't have the typical body habitus. That one would expect with diabetes, um, but you bring a you bring on a, a great point with regard to those uh, symptoms that what makes pancreatic cancer hard is that it doesn't cause symptoms until it's very advanced, and that's what makes only about fifteen to twenty percent of individuals eligible for that curative intense surgery um, and that's a problem that's difficult to get around if no symptoms occur.
0: Yeah, that's very tough. And I think that's one of the things when, when we make these diagnoses of people, you know, you have so many great tools out there when we talk about, you know, breast cancer and get your mammograms and for, colonosc- you get your, get, for colorectal cancer, get your colonoscopy. You know, it's such a hard thing when we're talking about pancreatic cancer. Uh, you know, I, I would hope that us as a community, and we'll see where, where medicine evolves and technology evolves with it. But do we know if there's any like cutting edge stuff that's coming that may be able to give people more of a chance versus getting diagnosed when they're at the end stage of this process? Do you guys, Are you guys aware of anything?
2: Sure, I mean, I can I can uh, speak a little bit about the surgical side or the local um, um, approaches that we have to treat tumors. Um, again, you know, it goes back to the staging. So set, let's say uh, somebody comes in, they have a new diagnosis of cancer. Usually they'll go through a staging process. We usually abide by the TNM uh, staging process. Uh, um, uh, Uh, as by the AJCC manual and so let's say they're in a stage where we believe that they might benefit from surgery or local treatment we then look a little bit deeper about the the relationship of the tumor to the blood vessels it used to be that if a tumor, and they're you know you you put them on a spectrum of whether or not I can take them out quote-unquote easily or it's not going to be easy at all to take it out for those patients who we call locally advanced tumors meaning that they haven't spread anywhere outside the confines of the where the pancreas sort of is uh, um, and but we can't do surgery there's modalities such as um, irreversible electroporation or nano knife that have been shown to be very promising which is it's essentially a treatment that we do in the operating room and we can introduce electrodes and try to ablate the tumor while it's in situ or in the same space where it is without doing surgery that's Obviously, less more, but it's also shown some promise in controlling the disease. Um, Dr. Andivia will tell you more about the chemotherapy. But from a surgical standpoint, I think that what we have on the horizon is minimally invasive approaches. And again, you know, it's it's not. I don't think as as if you're if you know the data and you know enough about the disease, you wouldn't claim that a minimally invasive operation um, um, is going to provide you long-term benefit. Compared to an open operation, because the operation is almost the same, but I think the advantage is that the risk of having um, infections, the risk of having issues or complications due to surgery that would delay you from getting additional chemotherapy, are um, improved with minimally invasive approaches. So I think um, um, those two things are things that we're excited about from a surgical standpoint. It's still a it's still a difficult cancer to treat. I'm not going to lie; it's a difficult ca- cancer to treat. But um, we're making incremental, um, um, incremental, yes, in, in, incremental progress. That, yeah. Dr. and David, from your end,
0: you know you've seen a lot of evolution of, of obviously chemotherapy, and I think that's probably when you you may be able to say, it, but probably when you train the agents that you that you had then, or the, sorry, the agents that you have now, the, or the the tool belt you have now, I like that the tool belt that
1: you have now is you have, you're much more armed with different tools now than you were probably when you were doing your training. Is that correct? Yeah, so we, I mean, there are newer drugs now that certainly weren't available when I started, and they have made a significant impact on our ability to cure patients uh, for those people who, you know, even after surgery, even in the best circumstances with surgery, the five-year survival rate still is at best about 30%. Um, we have taken people who've had their surgery and who are almost cured, and with our new, newer drug therapies, can cure them. For those people who can't be cured, we can make a substantial impact with our with newer chemotherapy drugs and for the most part in pancreatic cancer, it is still chemotherapy. We can make a substantial impact on length of life and quality of life. In terms of future directions for drug therapy, there are some targeted drugs which are on the horizon. There is in fact a group of drugs that we call PARP inhibitors, PRP inhibitors which can work, perhaps, in individuals that have specific mutations in a gene called BRCA, um, whereas for, for individuals that don't have that mutation, the drug would be of no use at all. But that's a targeted drug for pancreatic cancer, and there will be more things that, that come along just like that. And sort of going back to your question about screening, please. Um, there, yeah, we don't have the mammogram equivalent. pancreatic cancer. Um, And in fact, there is to date no sort of universal screening modality that has been shown to give us benefit in terms of improving survival, cure rates. However, certainly if you could screen for a cancer and find it earlier, for that individual patient, it could make a big difference. Uh, Our problem is, since we don't have good screening techniques and the screening techniques we have are very expensive. Who do you screen? And that's actually where the family history comes into into importance, and that is if we discover that someone has a significant family history that is suggestive of a gene mutation that can cause pancreatic cancer, those individuals are eligible for screening. And that screening involves uh, MRIs, uh, involves blood tests, involves endoscopic ultrasound where you put an ultrasound probe down to the stomach to look at the pancreas. And, at least on an individual basis, if we know that there's a risk and we do that screening, we have the ability to catch pancreatic cancer at a stage where surgery can be done. In the future, we hope that we can identify a series of proteins or perhaps snippets of genetic material from pancreas cancers that can be found in the bloodstream, and then you could screen someone by blood test. But right now, that fam- we come back to that family history um, that can be so key in identifying people at risk. So
0: this is, goes back to you know what we were talking about earlier. We have to be comfortable talking about these diagnoses, not diagnoses, not even just pancreatic cancer today, but just health in general amongst your family. If that's one thing you guys take away from today's show, just have that conversation. You never know what that might lead to. Or if you have that conversation, you never know what might happen. To A seed might be implanted in somebody's mind to then pay it forward and have further discussion. You guys are listening here live. We're here again at Intellectual Radio Studios. We're watching live on Facebook and everything. So I want to talk a little bit about, uh, a little bit more, more, going back to what I said earlier, about the, just the kind of the, the fact that sometimes it may take a celebrity uh, to have something to therefore then have have more engagement in the discussion on pancreatic cancer. So when you think about the people that have had pancreatic cancer that have at least, have at least uh, caused some awareness, you know, you think about, I got a couple of names here, uh, former Apple founder and CEO Steve Jobs, actor Patrick Swayze, actor Michael Landon, there's a couple of names that come to, come to mind that have all succumbed to pancreatic cancer. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think will helpfully happen as we continue to have this conversation, going back to what you were saying, Dr. David, is we raise more money, create more awareness, uh, and, and we're trying to take something that may be a negative situation and a challenging situation for someone to have the cancer diagnosis and turn it, turn it into something constructive that can hopefully help others uh, fight through things. When we think about our patients that have come and gone with this diagnosis, you know, we, we, you know I, I, for me, I can only speak for myself, but I don't want my patients to have passed in vain. Uh, you know, I, I think we generally, we care about each other. As people, as physicians, we are empathetic and we don't want to lose that empathy. And I think when you are motivated to take care of people, hopefully things will work out better in the future. We will pass that message forward. So let me ask this question. So here we go, Dr. Dudley. What do, you know, I think about us as clinicians, what do you think we can do as physicians to best educate the public more
2: about this diagnosis of pancreatic cancer? Sure. That's a great question. I think... You know, it goes back to, um, um, uh, you know, doing things like you do, you know, uh, having, having people like here us today. on yeah, <laughs> here today. I think it's a, it's a great venue uh, to discuss this and bring more awareness. I think it's important to direct patients to the, to the right resources, and uh, it's important to, to, to tell patients that uh, um, um, there are excellent, um, uh, excellent uh, uh, websites and, and books and, and, and magazines that they can read um, to educate themselves a little bit more. I think, in terms of raising awareness again, um, um, uh, we we try our level best uh, through our institution and through our um, uh, community to to uh, bring us up through different um, events and and social um, um, exercises, you know. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Dao, what do you think we should be doing? Because you know
0: us as as clinicians, you know we are, you know, we, we are our own best critics, I think. I mean, I think we work hard for what we do, and we want to continue to provide a service for others. So we have to be introspective, of course, on, our, on ourselves. But what do you think we as docs can do better to help people out there about this diagnosis to create more awareness and more engagement?
1: Well, you know, uh, ex- doing things like this, I'm, um, you know, it's helpful, we all actually ha- have opportunities to go out and speak to the community, go out to community centers, I've been to park districts wow. to, give, uh, to give talks, um, and quite honestly, to make ourselves available to questions, that is, be available right? Um, I think in this day and age it seems like everyone's running and no one has enough time, uh, but making ourselves available to patients and their families just to answer questions. Yeah.
0: I think that helps, helps not only give people peace of mind, but it tells them the truth too. Uh, and I think like, I think one of the things that I, when I got into doing this, my wife and I came, when we came with this idea a long time ago to do two-year-old with Dr. G. We wanted to bring people in, you know, my trusted experts, what they do to put a face to it. Uh, you know, to put the human side to it uh, of making sure that, that people out there have all opportunities for success in their health, whatever drives them, whatever motivates them to live their life with purpose and live their life with passion and with also good health because your health journey is part of your broader life journey. We want to we make it less intimidating. For people out there, when they go see to so when they go see their doctor, that that it doesn't feel overwhelming, that they can have just a general conversation. Yes, the physician has been trained in what they what he or she does, but also to have have uh, same to be on the same page. You guys know what I'm saying mm-hmm. on that kind of thing. So I think we got to do that better. So I always try to say, what can I do better myself when I talk to people about any health topic? But I think we should always be doing that. So let me ask this question. Let's flip it around. Uh, what do, what do you think people need to do? You know, again, we talk about. The more common cancers, breast, uh, um, colon, but really breast cancer, big, big move on that, that kind of stuff, lung cancers, things like that. But but how can people get involved? Uh, what else are you guys seeing? Like when you have patients coming in and support groups and stuff, how do you guys, how are you guys seeing that? How are you guys encouraging people? I know you guys work with a lot of nurse navigators for things. What kind of information do do they give out to patients for
2: for patients helping patients? Well, that's mm-hmm. a, that's a great question. You know, it, it's uh, it's tumor specific, and I think. You know we're we're fortunate enough to be in a large enough area that uh, there's a lot of support groups for different um, uh, for different rooms. So often what we do if somebody gets diagnosed um, with a new if somebody presents with a new diagnosis of pancreatic cancer or any cancer for that matter um, uh, we kind of figure out where their locale is where they where they live and then you can there's plenty of websites that are available online. One of them is the the uh, uh, American Cancer Society. It's a great Correct. website and the um, ASCO website which is the American uh, Society of Clinical Oncology um, and, and you can go, we, we usually help them, we go on the website with them and we find uh, different support groups and then our nurse navigator usually aside will be a second quarterback aside from their primary care uh, provider or physician yeah. uh, will be the second quarterback to kind of handle um, those issues because again it goes into the, the, the realm of a multidisciplinary team and so multi- multidisciplinary approach where um, um, we try to kind of from different uh, standpoints for the patients so.
1: and there's I think a, an underutilized source and that is through the American uh, Cancer Society they will hook you up with another patient who's in a similar situation who's gone through what you're what you're uh, going through and will actually connect you with that person so you can ask questions that perhaps um, don't seem like questions that you'd want to ask your physician or your physician how would he know how to answer it if he or she hasn't actually gone through what you're going through they can actually hook you up with someone that has the same stage of cancer who's going through the same treatment Mm -hmm. Um, and it's an incredible source of information with really kind of the day-to-day things that perhaps I don't even know about.
0: No. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. I mean, just having this discussion is the most important thing. So what I want to do now, I want to go to my section that I do every week on the show, Two Year Earth the Dr. G, called Myths Versus Facts. And it's something that I really am so proud that we do this every, every, every week. You know, those of you that follow us on social media, I always put something out there, after my wife does a little bit of editing and everything, but I always put something out there and I go, I heart Myths Versus Facts. But again, it's true, I do heart Myths Versus Facts. Because, again, it's a time to make sure you're getting the right information from the right resource uh, and and not getting your information from Dr. Google, who did not go to medical school or anything like that. It's true. Uh, But I want to make sure people have the right information so they can make the best decisions for their family and their loved ones. And so, again, use me. Use my source of credentialed experts to hopefully help guide you during this journey. So here we go. Myths versus facts. What I do is I say a statement, and then, like my, uh, my esteemed colleagues... Will either say myth or fact. I'm not trying to necessarily trick anybody, but uh, they'll say myth or fact and then give us a few words uh, why it's either a myth or a fact. So here we go, Dr. and David. First one for you. Here's a statement myth or fact pancreatic cancer is always deadly.
1: Uh, myth. Please uh, explain. Uh, Pancreatic cancer is a very tough cancer and um, many, many people die from it, but not everyone. Each of us has a lot of pancreatic cancer survivors.
0: Correct. Thank you very much. Here we go. Dr. Donnelly, here we go. Myth or fact? Statement. There is currently no screening
2: test used to detect pancreatic cancer. I suppose that would be, if I'm going to be a purist, the answer would be this is a myth because. Um, again, as, as Dr. Andevi highlighted, the, the, in specific high-risk groups, there are uh, MRIs and, and upper endoscopies uh, as well as uh, endoscopic ultrasounds that we can use to try to detect cancer um, early. But that being said, I don't want to send the wrong message to your listeners. For the average risk individual who has no family history and no other modifiable factors. There are no tests. There is, again, I'm going to use Dr. Ndivius, there is no mammogram equivalent for um, pancreatic cancer. And so we rely on the telltale signs, which are the abdominal pain, the jaundice, um, um, anorexia, or chain, you know, Losing weight with yes. no good reason or nuance to diabetes. Still. All right. Thank you. Here we go. Next statement, Dr. Ondavia.
0: Surgery for pancreatic. I'm asking you like a surgical question because you are totally the surgical oncologist. <laughs> uh, you're the medical oncologist. But here you go. You get a surgical question. Here you go. I'm going in order. <laughs> Surgery for pancreatic cancer can cause it to spread to other parts of the body. Myth or fact? That's a myth. Please explain. And uh, Dr. Datale, if you want to jump in on that one, you can too.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. (laughs) It's absolutely a myth. That's right. (laughs) Surgery is, you cannot, almost 100% of the time, you cannot cure pancreatic cancer without surgery. Surgery is actually the curative treatment.
0: Thank you very much. Here we go. Myth or fact? Here we go. Dr. Datale, next one here. People only get pancreatic cancer if there's a family
2: history of the disease. I would say that that's a myth. Please explain. Um, Unfortunately, as as we um, highlighted before, about uh, 90% of pancreatic uh, uh, cancer cases are what we call sporadic, meaning that we do not find identifiable familial or otherwise other risk. And so the majority is no.
0: Thank you very much. Here we go, Dr. Andavia. Here we go. Statement. Clinical trials are for patients at any stage in their
1: diagnosis. Uh... I'll say that that's a fact. Um, At any given moment, there may or may not be a clinical trial that's appropriate for you in your area, but clinical trials are available for every cancer and at some point for every stage. All
0: right, thank you very much, thanks for clarifying that. Here we go, a couple more of these. Here we go, myth or fact, Dr. Donaway, here we go. Eating sugar will make my cancer worse.
2: So that is a myth. Please explain. That is a myth. Um, I'll explain it this way. There's no um, um, uh, scientific evidence to back up that statement. We don't have any, I'm not aware of any study or shred of evidence that would back up that statement. And so um, that doesn't mean... you know, don't live a healthy diet. Now, I don't g- eat a healthy diet, but don't eliminate sugar entirely. That I be- agree. I,
0: I would say this comes down to, again, you know, we should be having a foundation of health and wellness, and that's certainly eating a healthy diet. And we've talked about that a lot on the show. You know, check out some old episodes. Here we go. A couple more of these myths versus facts. Here we go. Dr. Andavia, here we go. Pancreatic cancer only affects older
1: people. Well, we'll say that that's a myth. Um, it is true that pancreatic cancer under the age of 45 is uncommon and certainly does not affect children, Um, two-thirds of people with pancreatic cancer are diagnosed uh, after the age of 65, but pancreatic cancer can occur in any adult.
0: Thank you very much. And again, the average lifetime risk of pancreatic cancer, I got this from www.cancer.org, the American Cancer Society, is 1 in 64 people. All right, here we go, uh, Doctor Donnelly. Here we go. I'm going to give you this question. Uh, so, oh, sorry, I shouldn't say question. The statement, myth or fact? Here we go. Pancreatic cysts. And I know we didn't talk about this much, but I'm going to say it anyways. Pancreatic cysts should be evaluated and tested for malignancy.
2: I would say that that is. Um, I would say that that is not a myth. That is a fact. I think, you know, it's, it's a broad term, and I don't want to alarm people because, you know, pancreatic cysts, I'm going to take a minute of your time. Yeah, please go ahead. But pancreatic cysts are, are becoming more and more common because we are doing more um, cross-sectional imaging. We're doing more, we're looking for them more, for lack of a better word. And um, um, the majority of them are benign, but it is important to recognize that some of those cysts may have characteristics that we can identify with MRIs or EUS or biopsy, um, that um, uh, would push us towards um, labeling a, a, uh, a risk of that being malignant. In other words, um, if one has a pancreatic cyst don't out, be alarmed, but also get it checked out by somebody who treats pancreatic cysts on a regular basis.
0: Wonderful, thank you for clarifying that. Alright guys, there you have it. Myth versus Facts. Pancreatic cancer. So we've got about five minutes left guys, and we've been having a great discussion here talking about pancreatic cancer. We can talk about how do we promote awareness we talked about some diagnostics information, we talked about some treatment modalities, but most importantly, talked about what can we need to do, what should we be doing uh, to move forward uh, in the future on this diagnosis. So uh, what I want to do, we said at the beginning, we call it the chief complaint when somebody comes into your office. Of course, when people go away and it's time to get them back home, we call it the assessment and plan. And the most important thing, that's when, of course, those out there that are new to us, the assessment plan is when your physician gives you your diagnosis and a treatment plan, and most importantly, a follow-up. Because you always got to have a follow-up in things, without a doubt. So, I say that all the time, primary care. So, uh, so we'll, let's do this. Uh, Dr. Andavia, give us a few take-home points from your end on uh, what people should be getting out of this show today. What are, what are some take-home points for people to know
1: about pancreatic cancer that you think is important to share? If you're diagnosed with pancreatic cancer um, and surgery is being considered, you should go to, s- to a surgical oncologist. It shouldn't just be a surgeon um, who's a general surgeon and uh, does not do this for a living. It's, I think, important to know your family history. Even if you don't have a diagnosis of cancer, it's important to know your family history so that you can give that information to your family physician. Um, it's important not to be afraid of the diagnosis of cancer. If you have it, you have it. Ignoring it isn't going to make it better. And then finally, I'll say, since we have a a primary care doctor next to us, see your primary care doctor. Inform your primary care doctor about what's going on. Let him or her know anything and everything that's concerning you because it's that information that tips your physician off to look for something.
0: Thank you, Dr. Ndivya, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Dr. Donnelly, give us a few take-home points out there for people uh, to be successful with this diagnosis, or things that people should take
2: away from our conversation today. Sure, and I would echo what Dr. Ndivya said. I'm I'm gonna say a couple of things. I think if one is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, it's really important not to have a nihilistic view. I think it's important to go through the motions of um, getting evaluated, uh, figuring out the stage, and talking about the different treatment options. Because as we said, um, um, uh, oftentimes we can help improve symptoms, and in a a minority of patients or in a subset of patients, we're able to give hope for cure, or we can treat them with the intent of curing them. Um, The second thing I would say is always um, um, seek um, a physician or a team that treats this on a regular basis. Ask whether or not they have um, a tumor board, ask them what uh, uh, their credentials are, and and how their other patients have done and look for be uh, be a, be, a uh, uh, be proactive and advocate for yourself and of course always um, um, I can't tell you how much we appreciate the uh, private care physicians and providers who are who, who just help guide the management and and help us and the patients tremendously so listen to what they say and and get your physicals and, and that's right well thank you Dr. Dadaleh so my kind of
0: final thoughts to this you know we've been talking about pancreatic cancer today, but also in the global context of my hashtag series over the last couple weeks. You know, with any kind of cancer, it can be scary. It can be hard to navigate. But again, remember, your primary care physician and your team of specialists are there to help you. If you are a loved one that's been diagnosed with cancer, make sure you have that conversation with your doctor. Make sure you follow their recommendations to go see see their respective specialists. All of us here today want you to be successful in your health, regardless of what kind of diagnosis it is. Navigating yourself through cancer can be hard, but it's not an impossible journey. You have a team of experts here to help take care of you, and help you be you the right way. So with that, it's been a great Hashtag Cancer sucks series. The best thing you can do right now is share this show with others, spread the message, Hashtag Cancer, cancer Sucks, has a part of a daily conversation. Don't let this conversation die down. You can continue to pay it forward and doing well from there. So it's been a great show today. I wanna to thank my guests. Of course, Dr. Samir Davia, board-certified hematologist, oncologist, Associate Medical Director of Oncology Services at Edward Hospital, Edward Elmer's Health, check him out, www.eehealth.org. i got all my Edward peeps here today. My good friend, Dr. Fadi.LA, board-certified surgical oncologist, Edward Elmer's Health. Check him out, www.eehealth.org. You've been listening and watching live on Facebook and intellectualradio.com. This episode is written by Mark D. Gomez, MD, and Tiffany E.R. Gomez. Producer is Tiffany E.R. Gomez. Music is by the wonderful Mr. Havis. Copyright twenty nineteen by MDG Wellness LLC. All rights reserved. Stay tuned for my next episode in two weeks, guys. I know you gotta wait. so I'm tired of that. It's gonna be sad, but two weeks gotta wait for the next show. I got a week off next week. I'm gonna play a little golf and everything. Why not? Hey, the show in two weeks gonna be we called. Back to School series, part one, we're gonna be tackling the bullying epidemic. We're gonna have real talk about bullying. I'm so excited to have that series coming up. Hey guys, it's been a great time. Check out my website, www.drmarkgomas.com. Take care and peace out.